This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, an intimate forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is the first in a new series about trauma. In, this, in today's world, we have so many people coming back from wars that are traumatized. We have so many people who are traumatized in childhood, women who are traumatized by male violence. And um, I really wanted to dedicate a, a chunk of time in this show to talk about trauma, a subject that can be so difficult to give words to. My guest tonight is Mary Auslander. We're going to be talking about trauma, recovery, and group therapy for trauma. Mary is a clinician, speaker, teacher, and policy advisor about trauma. She's a trauma survivor herself. She's worked in New York City as an advocate for those with mental illness. And she's now a, pro a therapist in private practice in Demerscotta, Maine. She runs groups called Living Beyond Trauma, Surviving to Thriving. Welcome to Safe Space, Mary. Thank you so much, Anne. I'm glad to be here. So tell me, what is trauma? What, what, when we talk about trauma, you know, it's sort of in the news every day. What do we really mean? Mm -hmm. I think of trauma really as experiences that completely overwhelm our sense of agency, that overwhelm us. They can overwhelm us physiologically, but they overwhelm us emotionally, too. They overwhelm our senses, and the hallmark of traumatic experience, I think, is in the sense of helplessness that one feels in the experience, so that you can imagine how trauma works in natural disasters. You know, if you're watching your house be blown away by a fire or a hurricane, that kind of helplessness and the experience is so, um, affects you on so many levels that you are really unable to really process it in the same way that you would ordinary experience. And the same thing happens particularly to children because of where they are developmentally if they're traumatized in childhood or abused. So there are many sources of traumatic experience in our lives in the world. And um, as you said, war is one of the ones, combat trauma is one of the ones that I think we're most familiar with as a society. But there are personal traumas and interpersonal relational traumas that affect so many of the people that I work with and that I experienced. And um, I think that's what we see a lot in the mental health field. So, you know, you are so courageous in in speaking publicly about your own experience, and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that now. I can. My traumatic experience, which I never looked at as traumatic experience until I was almost 40 years old, uh, started in childhood when I was uh, sexually abused when I was six, and I was pretty terrified by this actually older child who I later learned was had also been being abused. But um, I lived with that as a as a secret and um, and sort of a form of fear inside me for many years. And then when I was a teenager, um, I had a confidant in a friend of my parents who then um, exploited me sexually. But you know, I considered myself at fault for that for many years as well. And then when I was 19, I was pregnant and unmarried, and I uh, was pretty certain I had no choice but to give up 
my baby for adoption, which I did when he was five days old. And I have to say that in retrospect, that was the the truly defining traumatic experience of my life, although I had already been suffering some effects of trauma that I didn't understand in the way I was in myself before that. But I know that the day that I left the hospital and I left the baby there, that was that was the day that I split from myself in a very definitive way. So then I really wandered and was very mixed up and lost for the next year, year and a half, and ended up in the psychiatric system at that time, about a year and a half after I gave birth. And I never mentioned the sexual abuse because I didn't want my parents to find out about their friend. Um, But I certainly mentioned having given up the baby. I even passed the one of the anniversaries of giving him up there. But what was in in vogue at that time really was to treat anyone with certain symptoms as if they were mentally ill. So I was told that my history and my experiences weren't nearly so relevant as my symptoms. So in fact, the cause of your symptoms was not addressed. Just this, the surface appearance of symptoms was what they were trying to get rid of. That was pretty much the case. Uh, And I don't even think my therapist, who helped me get admitted the first time, really knew that that's what was going to happen. And then do you think that in some ways the way that you were cared for in psychiatric hospitals became a fourth level of trauma? There's no question about it. And it's part of what drove me into the field, (laughs) in fact. There's no question. It was incredibly re-traumatizing, not only to be treated the way I was treated in the hospital um, and to see some of what happened to others as well, but I was uh, very poorly medicated with the medications that were available then. I was quickly and heavily medicated, which then created an entire new level of... um, Dissociation, which we may have to explain more yeah, wh- about. Yeah, why don't you explain? What, what, is, what was your experience of dissociation? Uh, well, you know, I think, I think that I spent time before I ever had my baby and gave him up. And I would like to mention that I've known him now for 17 years just because that's a powerful story that some people are very affected by. And so I like to let people know soon that it has a happy ending for me, which it doesn't for all. But... I, I'm very fortunate in that way. Um, dissociation for me was often, um, even in high school, being somebody other than who I was. It was holding secrets and always acting in another in a way that was removed from my center. I, it's a little hard to explain, especially from the times that I didn't have any idea what I was doing, but I had a great cover in high school because I was in theater. And so I got to play other characters all the time. (laughs) But it was pretty serious when I didn't know the difference between when I was someone else and when I was myself, when I was really sort of acting a role. And I already was um, sometimes losing time a little bit. You know, like I would sort of just not know who I'd been for the last hour exactly. So there was that kind of experience of, um, I think there's a technical term for it, um, but it's probably an old psychoanalytic one um, called derealization. 
And that's sort of how it was for me. And explain that, just so people know what you mean by... What, what is it like to experience derealization? Well, I could explain it with two examples. One is that when I started being um, exploited by this person that I thought was my great confidant, and whom I actually believed I was in love with, like a lot of 15-year-old girls think they're in love with older men, um, I, of course, believed I could completely trust him. And... Um, I would kind of, when I realized that that there was going to be a sexual relationship, I would pretty much shut down all my feelings about, all my feelings of fear and wrongness and to kind of go through with these actions so that my body was sort of acting in one place and my mind and my emotions were acting in another and then so you were like really numbing yourself out that's pretty much how it went mm-hmm. and then to carry on in life i mean i would be babysitting for these people and come home and i i know that many people have this story but um then i would have to become yet another person as you know the oldest of all these kids in my parents house and and with my parents and um, and when the families would get together, it would just be unbelievably awkward. But um, well, it's no wonder you got really good at playing roles, because oh, in fact you had to play roles from the very beginning. It's really true. So I think it's one of those examples of where perhaps a gift of mine or a talent of mine kind of ran up into experience that um, that really I don't know called upon it as a as a way of surviving, you know? Yes, it sounds like it. Yeah. But the the really defining experience for me was the day I left the hospital and I left the baby in the hospital. I very clearly remember it I really felt as if I were literally walking out of my body, that I left one version of my body in the nursery with my baby and I had insisted upon taking care of him as often as they would bring him in those days for the five days that we both were in the hospital together. And the day I had to leave, I just was acutely aware that I could not allow myself to feel anymore. Pretty much, I I didn't say to myself about everything, but I knew that if I let myself feel that I would be completely desperate. Yes. You know, I'm, I feel very moved hearing your story, and I'm so struck at how this is not, you know, on the list of what people think of as traumatic. Mm. You know, we think of child abuse now and sexual abuse and rape, domestic violence as trauma. We think of war as trauma. But giving up a baby, you know, that's not, I think, on mm. people's short list. And as I'm listening to you, it tore your heart out of your body. I mean, really... <laughs> It just tore you apart. It's well put. I think that's one of the reasons it was so traumatic because the experience of birth mothers who relinquished their infants uh, just was a hidden story. In fact, we just talked before we came in here about a couple of books that have just come out in recent years. And even with all the work around open adoptions and adoptees finding their parents, etc. There's been very little voice given to the stories of birth mothers. And 
there was not any sort of grief that was really allowed to be about that because it was all wrong to begin with. Yes, I mean, the whole thing was hidden. People were sent mm-hmm. away so that the family wouldn't be shamed. Definitely. Right, so then there's the grief goes underground. It's As well as the shame. The, the shame becomes the being, and the grief goes underground. That's really a good way to put it, actually. The grief goes underground. And what that then transforms into, I think, is pretty can become pretty dramatic. You know, I remember one of my teachers saying to me that the, the defining element of trauma was not actually the element of terror, but the degree of shame associated. And what I'm mm. sensing is that no no wonder this this was the worst trauma of all. It was because it was so mm-hmm. it, so steeped in shame before it had even happened. It's really true. That's a very good way to put it. And I used to kid about how I was going to write the story of my life as the stigma collection because I went from being <laughs> this, um, you know, having this illicit relationship. And then I, uh, and I played men in high school on the stage and in my all-girls school. And then I, and then I was an unwed mother. And then I was, then I was a psychiatric patient. And that was another stigma. And so I used to say, when I could kid about it, that that was going to be the story of my life. But well, Mary, I feel so honored to have you as my guest um, because your courage in speaking about this is so moving to me. And um, I want to ask you how you have found this courage. How is it that you can, in fact, give these experiences voice when I imagine that the the forces, both internal and external, to silence you are so great? Well, I really appreciate that question. You know, at this point in my life, I feel as if it's a privilege to be able to share these stories and that and to be part of having the silence broken. It's so important to me that we as a society stop pushing the experiences of trauma and abuse and abuse away and behind curtains and rugs and everything else. It's just we're, we just harm ourselves as a culture so, so much by the silence itself. I mean, that's the sense I'm getting almost is sort of the re-traumatization of the story, the original story of trauma being silenced. Mm-hmm. That what happened to you in the hospital, the, the psychiatric hospital, was that your profound trauma experience was then silenced, which became it's a whole new level of trauma. It becomes a new level of trauma because, be, well, I'll speak for myself, but I've worked with so many people, including other ex-patients um, who have described this. It's so it's so damaging because you're not only not given the opportunity that so many people think they are going to have when they go into a hospital. Yes. And I, I like to think that some things are different now, but I'm not so sure. Um that you think you're going to go in to be able to process experience. And not only are you not allowed to process experience, you're given another set of experiences of being labeled and medicated and told that you're going to be sick for life and that you probably will have to take medication for your whole life, etc. So that becomes a new trauma, new set of trauma to deal with. But then you are also pretty much given the message by all that, that what you thought was important in your life, what you thought was important to work out, 
and resolve so that you could heal yourself is not in fact true. And you are deferring to experts who you think know about this sort of thing. So, you know, one of the, I love to educate clients that I work with about the, you know, the cultural and educative backgrounds of these viewpoints because this is what so many people have experienced, the invalidation of what they knew was important in their lives. It's so critical. And therefore the eroding of their own self-trust. Oh, that to me, when I finally began to have distance, um, I was hospitalized, I think, six times altogether um, in my 20s. And when I finally said never again, which I was fortunate to be able to say when I was 30, um, I, when I finally began to get some distance and some help, I realized that that was the most traumatizing aspect of that experience. It was the sense that no matter what I did, I could not trust my own mind. I couldn't trust my own uh, gut feelings anymore. The belief that maybe they were right, maybe I really just am going to be a mental patient again, no matter what. And if I think that I can just have this feeling and go with it, that's probably pretty crazy. And then there's this whole dynamic, of course, that happens among those who even love you and are trying to help you, who just begin to look at you in terms of symptoms or developing symptoms at any given point. And, you know, my poor family, I mean, what they went through to try and work with me when I started, you know, refusing to cooperate with psychiatry anymore. Um, we went through a lot together. We really did. I can only imagine. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Mary Auslander about trauma. And I actually want to shift now to recovery. And mm. so you had these profound experiences. And um, clearly now, you know, 30 years later, you are in this really very, very different place. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear, you know, what were the, what are the most important ingredients of your recovery? I really love to talk about ingredients of recovery because there was a time when I think people thought you couldn't recover from certain labels of mental illness and and I think that uh, many people even when they realize their trauma don't know that they can recover um, and I'm here to say that it's absolutely possible <laughs> it's so possible in fact I think the prospects of healing from trauma that one recognizes and actually works with is are profoundly um, well what's the word I guess I can just say again that it's so possible. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like we can ever remove the trauma, but one can heal so well. And the ingredients, I think, are things that we've always known really matter to people's well-being. The, but there are special ingredients, too, for healing from trauma. But So the fundamental ingredients for ever, any recovery are true support, true support, true recognition of one's experience, true validation, um, true tolerance of what one has to manifest to go through. So there, it's not that medications can't be helpful for some symptoms, but there's a, I think when people recognize that there's a process happening behind symptoms that 
that really one can come out the other side of, having really expressed and integrated something very important, that that kind of help is essential. And I think that um, the group work has become so important to me because the other support that needs to happen for people, particularly when so much shame is attached to a difficulty, is recognition among people who have been through similar experiences. And really, the most healing thing that happens in the groups that I start periodically, a couple of times a year, is when people walk down, walk in the room and sit down with one another and look around and they realize without having said anything yet, we're all here because we have a history of childhood abuse. Isn't that amazing? I am not alone. And not only am I not alone, I might not even be the most abused person here. I might not even be the most and so many people think of themselves in terms of being screwed up. You know, I might not be the worst damaged goods in this room. And the relief. The oh, relief. The relief is immense. Yes. I and mean, the compassion. Yeah, because trauma, you know, I think by its very nature, it happens in isolation. It happens in secrecy. It happens in hidden context. The relational especially, yes. Yes, and so then if you're if you're together with people, it's just breaking something. It's open. It's it. It's already something really new happening. That's right. So I want to go back. Before we talk about groups, I want mm. to talk about one thing you said that felt so powerful about tolerance for, for supporting people through the process that they are going through. And mm. I, I want to be really clear about what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the most affecting results of trauma for people is that they lose the opportunity to develop in a way that allows them to regulate themselves well, too. You know, a lot of, of people abused in childhood literally have nervous systems and brains and cellular development that's different from other people. And so they are an enigma to themselves in terms of how they can hold their own emotional lives and their own thought processes, which are often very damaging, habitual thought processes. So if we, as therapists, can't hold that with them, if we say when someone is really, um, say, speaking at 240 miles an hour and, um, and sort of in a flood of memories or a flood of making connections, if we say immediately, that style is not acceptable, you know, or you, we have to medicate this. Exactly. Or, or we've exactly. gone in too deep. We're stirring up too much. Quick, we have to shut oh, the process down. The whole, you know, when I was when I first was in touch with the expatient movement, we used to say, the last place you want to go if you're having a nervous breakdown is to a hospital, <laughs> because they're going to not let you have your nervous breakdown. They're going to really squelch it, and you know those things happen because people really have borne too much. You know, it's not that we are not bringing some biological tendencies to whatever our experience is. I mean, not everybody gets manic as a result of something, or not everybody gets really depressed and struggles with that. So we have to have our propensities recognized, too. But all of those things, genetic or otherwise, get triggered by our experiences. And so they get healed in our experiences as well. Yes, I mean, it's sort of like really trusting that the healing process is not always tidy. 
Oh, it's so messy. It, it's, <laughs> it can be very messy. And, you know, one of the things that we have so, so much emphasis on as a culture is that is progressive, you know, ways of being, you know, we're going to just learn more and more and we're just going to go in a straight line and we're just going to heal more and more. And healing from trauma is so not linear. And I just, I give people the picture often of these sort of, um, it's progressive, but it's sort of circular. Spiral. So, yeah, it's a spiral. It looks like if you took a slinky and you spread it out, you know, those kinds of circles so that yeah. you're always, you're always learning something and you're always, um, you're always moving and, and learning and integrating more healing into your life. But, you know, with every other um, thing that happens to you in every other relationship, chances are something that hasn't been quite resolved is going to be triggered again. But each time you have more of yourself and more of your self-trust and more of your support in order to deal with it. So for someone who has experienced trauma and who you know, is feeling hopeless about how much, what, you know, what does healing look like? What can I hope for? What what do you Mm. say to that? I think healing looks like having real faith in yourself again. I think healing looks like being able to be in your body, which may have become like the enemy, uh, depending on what kind of trauma you experienced. Um, being able to see your body as an ally again and use what you experience in it and the thoughts that go with it to actually know who you are and where you are at any given moment so that you have freedom of choice. That is what it's about. It's about becoming free, not being dictated into certain ways of behaving because that was your old survival strategy. In fact, that's one thing I'd like to say that I think is so important that in my point of view, and it's not mine alone, that symptoms are really what's left of our survival strategies. There's always a protective aspect of it. It always was put in place to survive to begin with. It may not be serving us anymore. And when you're healed from trauma, you get to choose how you're going to survive any given experience. And so give me an example of that to make that accessible. What kind, what's an example of a symptom that is a vestige of a survival strategy? Okay, so a symptom could be someone who, um, who whenever she hears raised voices, she just, um, well, this is, I'm not too good at this right on the spot, but I'm thinking of someone who, whenever she hears raised voices, she just completely shuts down. So she can no longer hear what's being said, and she also freezes in, in, in place. But when she was a child, that's exactly how she survived. If she froze, she didn't add to the, to yes. the argument and become a, a focus of attention. So she actually saved herself from more abuse she froze. She made herself invisible. This is not so useful in our adult lives. <laughs> we need to be able to come back when someone's raising their voice. We need to be able to come back with our own full voice, or we be, need to be able to move ourselves away from that situation. Thank you. That is such a powerful example. I think oh, of good. not seeing symptom as pathology, but seeing it as connected to something resourceful. Absolutely. Which is such a, an important part of healing, I think, is mm-hmm. not pathologizing ourselves. Yeah. 
Um, Mary Auslander, I, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. It's been a privilege to talk to do so tonight. Thanks so much. So if you want to reach Mary Auslander for have further contact or to be part of one of her groups, her office number is 207 207- 